Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we will hear from John Popel on Midwife in Israel, Rahab's story. Israel is not yet born as a nation. They are still a wandering tribe of vagabonds. They've escaped slavery in Egypt through Moses. But for the past four decades, they've circumnavigated the wilderness lands south of Canaan as punishment for their cowardice. Israel had stood on the brink of taking the promised land 40 years before, but when God directed them to attack, they failed in faith and heart, their first effort at conquest crashing in abortive failure. Since then, Moses has gone the way of all flesh, and God has personally buried him in a secret place in Noah. Joshua stands tall as the new leader. The time has come, God decrees, and he calls Israel to attack again to renew their drive to acquire the prize he promised. Battles en route to Canaan have killed Sihon and Og, the Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, and overcome their armies. For the second time now, Israel stands assembled on Jordan's banks at the very threshold of the Promised Land, poised for destiny. Jericho will be their first battle of conquest. Memories of their parent generation's failure must be torturing the minds of the military rank and file. Cautiously, Joshua sends spies ahead to scope the land and develop his warfare strategy. Joshua had once been a spy for Moses in the same capacity, in Numbers 13, so he well knows the value of espionage intelligence. Joshua tells the spies to focus on Jericho, doubtless because it is the local stronghold, and two spies are dispatched to the city. It's in this context that I feel God is presenting Rahab as his nation's midwife. It's a role that perfectly encapsulates how she enables Israel to come to life within the land God has promised them. And we'll see quiet but compelling evidence of her in the midwife role as events unfold. Resisting evil in power, a midwife's tale. On arrival in Jericho, the spies go to a prostitute's house for the night. We might raise a disapproving eyebrow from our comfortable armchair viewpoint, but lives are on the line, and this is a smart choice of venue for foreigners trying to arouse minimum suspicion. Unfortunately, their ruse is unsuccessful, and word gets to Jericho's king where the spies are housed. But this is no ordinary prostitute. Rahab the Canaanite is a leading lady of considerable resolve, and she will easily outmaneuver the king of Jericho to play a founding role in the nation of Israel. Her name, Rahab, means wide or broad. Biblical names are commonly given to reprise a principal feature of a person's story or character. We've seen already the value of understanding Deborah as a firebrand woman, and Jael as the faithful one from the group of Kenites who were traitors. Rahab's name may derive from the placement of her house, which is critical to the plotline. Jericho's city walls are sufficiently broad that houses exist on them and Rahab's is one such. This broad wall, i.e. Rahab Homa, is a common city design over many centuries. Some are still visible today in northern Italy, and they're mentioned elsewhere in scripture, for example, Jeremiah 51, 58. It's from this vantage that Rahab safely liberates the spies after the city gates are shut by lowering them to the ground on a scarlet cord from her windows on the city wall's edge. More importantly, Rahab is courageous. When challenged by the king of the city himself, 
to surrender the spies, she is not afraid to deceive him, telling him the spies have slipped away just before the city gates closed. In reality, she has hidden the men in the flax leaves she laid out on the roof, in bold defiance of regal edict. Now, sensitive to our midwife hypothesis, already we hear a gentle echo of the brave Hebrew midwives who defied the king of Egypt by refusing his command to murder the male Hebrew babies in their care. The midwives, Shipra and Pua, meaning beautiful and brilliant, possibly again attributed names to convey God's pleasure, deliberately misled the king of Egypt, just as Rahab deliberately misled the king of Jericho, and the Hebrew males they were protecting were saved. In both cases, we see the females in the lead role protecting the males, as midwives protect the vulnerable by resisting a predatory authority. And God rewards the faithful women for honoring him and not flinching before the wicked edicts of powerful men. Mercy and Judgment Rahab knows of Israel's conquests, and her spiritual insight perceives they have been secured by a living and active God. She confidently realizes that Israel will take Jericho, so she immediately barters with the spies to save the lives of her family. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, that's the Hebrew word chesed, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly, chesed, with my family. Joshua 2 verse 12. Rahab reminds the spies of the merciful kindness she has shown them and requests reciprocal consideration. Chesed for chesed. But there's a problem. Israel has been commanded to utterly destroy the inhabitants of Canaan, and that includes Rahab. But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall, Haram, utterly, Haram, destroy them, Haram. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17. The Hebrew text is remarkable to my anglicized eyes. The imperative, you shall utterly destroy them, is just three consecutive identical words. Haram, haram, haram. Literally, destroy, destroy, destroy. The triplet phrase literally could not be stronger and communicates the concept that God has censured something so heavily it must be totally and utterly annihilated. Violation of the law of Haram is heinous, and a man named Achan will do precisely this in Jericho's battle, which will follow, when he steals a wedge of gold, 200 shekels of silver, and a Babylonian garment which attracted him. God announces Achan's dire destiny to Joshua. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, the Hebrew Helen. Therefore, the children of Israel have themselves become doomed to destruction, Helen. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed, Helen, from among you. Joshua 7, verses 11 and 12. Achan confesses, but it's too late. He and all his family are stoned to death and their bodies are burned. Such is the rigidity and severity of Haram. Thus, to grant Rahab's request for mercy would also violate the commanded Haram, because she is a Canaanite and among the accursed things. 
she cannot be granted mercy. Except Rahab shows her qualities as a leading lady in understanding the character of Israel's God. Firstly, she shows she understands his concept of Haram. She acknowledges seeing it in the destined fate of the Amorite king. Quote, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, Haram. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any man because of you. The Lord your God is he who is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Joshua 2, verses 10 and 11. Secondly, and most importantly, Rahab's faithfulness and godliness perceives the core truth. For Israel's God, Hesed, always trumps love. Mercy always trumps judgment. Rahab instinctively knows this. Her eye of faith sees it as plain as day. She knows that as a willing convert to Israel's God, calling in her considerable faith upon his mercy, she is exempted from Haran. It's a brilliant and accurate perception. To the spy's credit, they understand this too, and they confidently promise her salvation from Israel's conquest without failing their God. Quote, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly, said, and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Joshua 2, verse 14. With that, Rahab assists the spies to escape, saving their lives by lowering them from her windows beyond the city wall with a scarlet cord. Now, if we look again carefully at Rahab's request for mercy, we can see even more of her godly character. Quote, Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Joshua 2, verse 13. Notice the list of those Rahab once saved from destruction. Her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. She doesn't mention herself, except by implication at the very end when she pleads for, quote, our lives to be spared. Rahab's altruism is quite inspiring. The fact she's a prostitute will cause some to disdain her. But such judges should take pause, because what we are shown on the heavenly plane is an intrinsically selfless and godly woman, primarily interested in saving her family before herself. Alongside Abraham. When the Apostle James seeks to bolster his New Testament argument that true faith is only validated by the actions it provokes, he cites just two examples, Abraham and Rahab. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, quote, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, end quote, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? James 2, verses 21 through 25. Why these two? 
Does James wish to pick a male and a female example to show that powerful faith is held independent of gender? Quite possibly. Does he wish to pick one rich person, estate and livestock owner Abraham, who literally commanded an army of men, alongside one poor person, courtesan Rahab, to show that exemplary faith is independent of wealth? Again, quite possibly. Does James wish to pick one person revered in society, the great Father Abraham, referenced that way by Stephen in Acts 7, by Paul in Acts 2, and vicariously even by Jesus himself in Luke 16, alongside one person commonly socially belittled, prostitute, to show great faith is also independent of one's social status and propriety. All three of these pairings are valid in education. But most likely, James has selected Abraham and Rahab because of their actions per se. James's point is that the importance of faith bearing the fruits of action, then the actions themselves are most likely his reason to choose them. And what are those actions? To view them with earthly eyes, Abraham attempted to murder his own son, and Rahab betrayed her own people. Standing alone, devoid of context, these are the most repugnant acts a human could commit, attempted filicide and treason. Both are capital offences in many cultures, commanding the death penalty. So to have performed either, as Abraham and Rahab respectively did, marks them as acts of ultimate faith, because these choices have the potential to render them hated and condemned among their own people. I suspect this is what provokes James the Apostle to think of Rahab when he was seeking to testify to the very best works of faith from history. And in so doing, we see his inspired commentary placing Rahab alongside Father Abraham. Rahab's faith in God was well placed, however, and she is duly delivered from a cursed Canaan. She is plucked from the fire of Haran which fire literally consumed the bodies of Achan and his family. There's a final intriguing match with Abraham here too, because Abraham's origin is given as Ur of the Chaldees. We recall God's dramatic announcement, quote, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess, Genesis 15, verse 7. And this promise is partly fulfilled in Rahab's day when Abraham's children occupy the land for the first time. It's usually assumed God speaks of Ur purely as a geographical location, perhaps because the, quote, land to possess, end quote, to which Israel are taken, is also a geographical location. But I think God's pronouncement is chiefly spiritual. The Hebrew word Ur means flame. I believe God is saying he plucked Abraham from the fire of the Chaldees, a statement not geographically oriented, but pregnant with spiritual meaning. The Chaldeans are marked for destruction, hellfire, if you will. But God sees a valuable man of faith who is worthy of salvation, and so God reaches out to save him. Abraham is plucked from the hellfire of the Chaldean Haran. And here we see Rahab, presented by James as Abraham's equal, plucked from the hellfire of the Canaanite Haran. It's a familiar biblical motif. When God says, I am the Lord who brought you from the fire of the Chaldees, 
It's echoed by his comment to Israel, you were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, in Amos 4, uh, verse 11, and his rebuke to the Satan, quote, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not Jerusalem a brand plucked from the fire? And Daniel's three friends experienced the real-life version of being plucked by God from Nebuchadnezzar's fire, which the Babylonian king had stoked to kill them, and which had already consumed his own soldiers, Daniel 3. God plucks from the flames those few things that are valuable, like Abraham, like Rahab. Hidden in the flax, quote, Rahab had, however, brought him up to the roof and hidden him with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof, end quote. That's Joshua 2, verse 6. Tikva Frymakensky illuminates some rare wordplay here. The word used to hide the spies, sapan, is conjugated with a singular suffix. In other words, the text says she hid him, just as I read out, when it's abundantly clear there are two spies. English translations, you'll see, invariably correct this error and print the plural form. But is it an error? What if something intentional, if subtle, is in play? What if the word deliberately appears with a singular suffix in Rahab's story to deliberately match the only other time in Scripture it appears that way? That other match is in Exodus chapter 2. The quote is this. When Jochebed could hide, Sapan, him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, that's Moses, and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. Jochebed hides her baby, Israel's nascent leader, among the bulrushes. Moses is later retrieved by Pharaoh's daughter, who decides to hire a midwife to raise the baby. A cunning ruse by Moses' sister, Miriam, who was watching over the papyrus cradle the whole time, results in Jochebed herself being selected as midwife, even though she's the mother. From our perspective, what's important is the word sapan is used when a midwife hides a vulnerable baby Israelite, in that case Moses, among the river floor. So when sapan is used to describe Rahab hiding the spies among the flora laid out on her roof, the match with Jochebed's case implies the spies are vulnerable baby Israelites, and Rahab is their protective midwife. That's the second midwife echo we've heard already. Now, it's a very speculative proposal based on the match of a single word form, which is too weak to support an idea by itself. But we've already seen Rahab mirror the scene of the brave Hebrew midwives interrogated by the king of Egypt, and, more compellingly, there are two more tangible clues which identify Rahab as Israel's spiritual midwife more confidently, the unlikely duo of circumcision and the scarlet cord. Circumcised the eighth day. Israel have just crossed the Jordan and are encamped at Gilgal, as is told in Joshua 4, verse 19, very close to Jericho, as a staging point for their first battle. God then issues what seems to be a very oddly timed command. Quote, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the people of Israel again the second time. That's Joshua 5, verse 2. Why do this? 
The immediate text explains that this younger generation had not been circumcised as their parents were, and that fact harbors a very dark portent in itself. It suggests the mindset of the generation who were sentenced to wander to death in the wilderness really had mentally and emotionally given up on their faith and on the observations of the law, even to the potential detriment of their own children, whom they left in a state contrary to the commands of their God. But that only explains why the current soldiers are uncircumcised. It doesn't explain why God chooses to circumcise them at this particular time. This timing of God's command for circumcision fits perfectly with our suggested motif of God viewing this as the birth of his nation Israel and Rahab facilitating that birth as midwife. We can be precise about that. God's law dictated that newborn males should be circumcised on the eighth day, Leviticus 12 verse 3. We know Israel crossed the Jordan on the 10th of Abib. Joshua 4.19, and they were circumcised at that time, Joshua 5 verse 2. We can take that latter phrasing as immediate because the celebration of Passover, which is on the 14th of Abib, comes later in the text. If God is true to his own laws, and I confidently assume that he is, then we can count back from the Jordan transit and find the day that God views as his nation's birthday. Counting backwards, the Israelites camped for three days at the Jordan before they crossed it. That's given in Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. They took up station at Jordan's banks after hearing the spies' positive report. That's Joshua 2, verses 23 to 24. After the spies returned from hiding in the hills for three days to ensure their pursuers from Jericho's military didn't find them. That's Joshua 2, verse 22. So Israel's birthday, according to divine sight, is the day before that, the day they met Rahab. And now we have another subtle yet powerful revelation of God presenting Rahab as Israel's midwife from his command for circumcision on the eighth day after Rahab's action. Consider the timeline. Israel is still outside the promised land. They will have a fearful memory of their aborted invasion of 40 years ago when their cowardice angered God and he sentenced the entire generation to extinction. But they have begun again by spying out the land, particularly the stronghold Jericho. Here is where Rahab is invaluable. Not only does she provide a base from which the spies can operate, but she imparts vital, game-changing intelligence. She lets the spies know that the Canaanites are already terrified of Israel. Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11. In fact, Rahab's testimony of the strength of Israel's God is far more faithful and praise-oriented than most of Israel's. She says, The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Joshua 2, verse 11. Consider the effect Rahab's words will have on Israel's soldiers. Without doubt, learning that your enemy's army is terrified of yours is vitally encouraging and inspiring news to any warrior's ears. This day constitutes Israel's birthday in God's eyes. The day that Rahab hid the spies, delivered her messages of encouragement and faith in Israel's God, and, critically, the day she tied the scarlet cord 
on Canaanite Jericho. It's the day the midwife contributes most directly, which is, of course, the day of the birth. Truly, Rahab has facilitated Israel's entry into the promised land in exactly the way that the midwife delivers a baby into the world. Does this matter? I believe it does, because otherwise Rahab's glorious elevation by God goes unseen. A less careful analysis might conclude that Israel's birthday was the day they crossed the Jordan, because the Jordan crossing is clearly a baptismal moment, and it's often inaccurately reasoned that baptism is the start of discipleship. It isn't. But then God would have called for Israel's circumcision on day one, which is inconsistent with his own law that circumcision is warranted on the eighth day. So we dial back a week to discover the true day of Israel's birth, and thereby glimpse the beautiful scene where Rahab is chosen by God as midwife for his people, a profound and signature honor. Salvation in Scarlet. Quote, the men said to her, we will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you if we invade the land and you do not tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed. Joshua 2, verses 17 and 18 and 21. We remember the precedent of the Scarlet Cord. When Tamar was in labor with twins, interestingly from an act of prostitution into which she had been forced, the midwife tied a scarlet cord around the arm of the nascent firstborn. This son thus earning the name Scarlet, Zira, Hebrew. But the other son overtook his brother and broke out of Tamar's womb before him, earning the name Breakout, Perez. And it's Perez, the one who displaced his brother, who was chosen by God to bear Messiah's line. This sets Perez, about whom we otherwise know nothing, as something of a genealogical origin, a patriarch in his own right. And perhaps that's why Bethlehem citizens call a blessing upon Ruth's descendants from the ancestral origin of Perez. In Ruth at chapter 4, verse 12. God's people, Israel, are born into their land via Rahab the prostitute, just as Tamar's prostitution birthed Perez. The spiritual point of the scarlet cord, however, is this the land of Canaan already has a populace. In human terms, these indigenous Canaanites are the rightful inhabitants of the land, the First Nation people, if you will. God doesn't desire to set a precedent whereby invasion and displacement of an indigenous populace is his signature style. So, via the scarlet cord symbol, God shows his exceptional permission for an indigenous people to be displaced, for Israel to break out against Canaan and displace them, as Perez had innocently done to Zerah. In the same way as with Tamar's birth, a midwife will be chosen to tie the scarlet cord around the firstborn to signal the impending displacement. And that's what we see. Quote, then Rahab tied the scarlet cord in the window. Joshua 2, verse 21. Rahab ties the scarlet cord on Jericho, and her destiny and that of her city is sealed. Israel breaks out against their brethren and takes the land. The promised land has been entered in earnest, and God's kingdom is born on earth, a kingdom dedicated to heavenly principles and practices, yet which is owned and populated entirely by humans. 
this kingdom will fail and fall, but in so doing will provide the necessary education that we can only be saved by grace through faith, just as Rahab was. James 2.25 Who then is Rahab? We can say Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. We can say Rahab is the divinely appointed midwife to God's own people. And whichever we see and say actually tells us more about who we are than who Rahab is. With earthly eyes, we see earthly things, and we will see Rahab as a prostitute, which she surely was. But with heavenly eyes, we are enabled to see heavenly things. And on that plane, we see Rahab standing tall as a leading lady, appointed by God to deliver his nation into the land he promised them so many years before. Scarlet woman she may be, but Rahab plays a vital role in bringing salvation to God's people as she births them. Amen.